Please be seated. Good evening to you. Job chapter 7 this evening in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight as we're turning there and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just get their attention, and they'll be happy to get one into your hands, and you can read along with us uh, tonight. We remember that in chapter 3, Job uh, broke the silence that uh, kind of dominated his three friends in him. He had, in the midst of a great, great trial, and he broke the silence, as was the custom of the day. And he broke that silence by just simply, in the best way that he could, just express how hard this trial was that uh, God had entrusted to him. And the trial was so difficult, and, it, and he didn't speak it for the sake of effect or hyperbole or anything like that. He wished he was dead. He wished that he had never been born. If being born meant that this was what he was going to experience in life, that's a tough place to be in life. And Job isn't the last person to have been in that place. And so he is expressing, and any time we sit with a friend or sit with anybody that is expressing the depth of their heart because of the difficulty of what God has allowed into their life, that's holy ground. They are entrusting something priceless to us. To be able to listen to them, they trust us enough to do that. It's really an honor what Job is extending to these three friends. They will not prove themselves worthy of that honor, and, uh, but it was, that was what was going on. And then in chapters 4 and 5, uh, his first friend, the first of the three to speak up, Eliphaz, probably the oldest of the three, he accused Job of being guilty of secret sin, that that's the cause of his suffering, and that God was judging him because of this secret sin or because of this hypocrisy. Job, you, out in public, you gave this appearance for so many years of being like this, but now we know there's a great deep dark secret as it relates to your life. And then Job in chapter 6, he began his reply to Eliphaz and was just basically trying to point out to the, him and the other two friends that there was real cause for his pain and real cause for uh, his complaint. And then he cried out to them that if they were going to accuse him of being a sinner, then at least point out my sin. Because Eliphaz had said, God, has, he came to me and the hair stood up on my arms and everything, and then he showed me that, you know, you think you're greater than God, and so the sin of pride is what he was intimating and all. And Job is kind of saying, well, if God is going to show you that I'm a sinner, then why wouldn't he show you at the same time what sin I'm guilty of committing up? committing because he knows that I don't have the slightest idea if the cause is sin, then what sin he's judging me for. And if it really was a vision from God, why wouldn't he let you know the sin that I need to confess and to repent of? And so Job continues his response to Eliphaz's accusation here in chapter 7, having we left off at the end of chapter 6 next last week. And so he says, is there not a time of hard service for man on earth. And basically, he's contending that can't these difficult things be happening in my life simply because life is hard in this world. 
And I remember years ago, I uh, saw a bumper sticker, and it, I mean, a little more melancholy than how I want to go through life, but the bumper sticker said, life is hard and then you die. You know, sometimes you see bumper stickers on people's cars, and then you have to look at them when you, when you drive past them just to see what kind of person has that sticker on their car. But there's a lot of truth to that. This isn't heaven yet. This is a fallen world. This really is a difficult place. And that sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden introduced great difficulty and trial into life. And so he just contends it doesn't have to always be sin that creates a difficulty in life. It's a fallen place we live in, and life is hard, and life is difficult. Why don't you guys run to that as an explanation instead of this accusing me uh, of, of sin? And then he said, are not his days, and that is the laboring man, also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly works for his wages. For so I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. And so Job is thinking, he's saying, listen, at le- even a slave in this world, even a, a, a labor, that does, labor that does back-breaking work, labors through the course of the day, but they get off of work, they get to have a meal, they get to have a good night's sleep before they begin their hard work again. He said, I don't get any break from this trial. This, this thing goes on day and night for me. So I'm in a, a more difficult place than, than anyone else that I know of, even in the hardest place in life. It's interesting in verse 3 that he uh, mentions the fact that this trial had been going on for months. You notice that word months in verse 3. So sometimes you read the book of Job, and I don't know, it'd be interesting uh, to wonder how long as you read through it you think this went on. Did it go on for days? Or did it go on for weeks? Or did it, does it seem like it went on for years? And they couldn't have talked for years. But so we wonder, how long was Job in this trial? Well, at this particular point, he's been in this trial for months. We don't know for sure how long uh, it went on uh, completely, but it was longer than days and longer than weeks and months, but not, it didn't go into years. Uh, many uh, people speculate that the time of this great trial in Job's life was probably somewhere in about six months. We don't know for sure, but that wouldn't be too far from uh, being accurate. And Job said, when I lay down, he gives us insight into the difficulty of his life. He says, when I lay down and he wants to get some sleep, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing until dawn. He's not getting any sleep at night. I think most of us, you get a little bit older and we begin to understand this in some level or something where you're waking up every 15 minutes or every hour or something's happening like that and you just can't wait for the night to be over and for the day to begin. Well, that was his portion, night after night after night, long sleepless nights. And he said, my flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and uh, breaks out afresh. So his skin is cracking and broken and with the boils that he has, the worms have gotten involved in it and and dust and, you know, the sores are open and active. And and so he's just in, you know, a very difficult situation. My days are swifter than a, a weaver's shuttle and they can really make that move fast and are spent without hope. 
Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see good again. And so he's lamenting how fast his life is going by. He despairs of ever knowing the good life uh, again. My eye will never see good again. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. I'm slipping away uh, toward death. I don't have much longer in this condition. While your eyes are upon me, I shall be no longer. He figured he might die any time in these conversations. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so is he who goes down. So he who goes down to the grave does not come up. His life is vanishing from sight like a cloud. He shall never return to his house. I'm going to die. I'm not going to survive this trial, nor shall his place know him anymore. I will never know my former life. This is what he's uh, declaring. And he said, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. Now, he's going to get into a little trouble here because, and his friends are no help to him at all on this, but he figures, what have I got to lose? I've lost everything, and I want to die, so you can't make my life more physically miserable for me, and so I'm going to just speak what it is that's on my heart and, and what, uh, what, what, what's on my mind, what else could happen to me. And so I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent? And he begins to talk to God and to complain to God about his condition. Am I a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? In other words, God, am I so dangerous to the world that that you confine me by these circumstances and by this physical condition that I'm, that I'm in, that, that you uh, put me in that place and you're watching over me every minute in this kind of a way. And uh, God is watching over him. All of heaven is watching over him at this point in time, but not in the way that he thinks. He thinks God is angry with him, God's upset with him, and and God has kind of an evil focus upon him, a focus for bad. But all of the heavens are watching Job and this great trial he's in and a testing of his faith over whether men and women will walk with God, simply uh, to walk with God and not for the blessings that he gives, but simply for the relationship with him. But he's, he's in that place, and he's confused, and he needs to be told these things, but he doesn't have any friends that will tell him that stuff. And so when I say, my bed will comfort me, uh, my couch will ease my complaint, every time I think, all right, I'm going to go to sleep, and I'll escape for a few hours the trouble of my life through sleep, then you scare me with dreams, you terrify me with visions, so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. The only people that want to live forever are people who are enjoying health and enjoying prosperity. He says, let me alone, for my days are but a breath. And so again, he accused God of keeping sleep from him. That was an accusation that wasn't uh, true at all, and he just asked God to please just let me uh, die. And what is man that you, as he continues to speak to uh, God, what is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? And so he's, he's asking God, why have, you, why, why have you made me a special target of your attention, of all of the people in the whole wide uh, world? How long 
Will you not look away from me and let me alone until I swallow my saliva? I don't have any privacy. And he he just felt like he was a mouse being played with uh, by a cat. And so why am I, why do I have your attention in this way? Turn your attention to somebody else if this is kind of what your attention means to me. And so again, he's you know, he's, he's getting goofed up in how he's talking to God and how he's understanding God, but this is what he's communicating. He said, have I sinned? So maybe the accusation that I've sinned is true and I don't know about it. Do I have secret sin that I'm not aware of? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden even to myself? And so he uh, asked God to show him this. He's under the influence of his counselors here, and, and he's believing all the wrong things about his situation. He's then carrying these things over to God, none of which is true about God, but sometimes that's what happens when, God, when people claim to speak for God into our lives when we're in this kind of a place, and they really aren't uh, representing God at all. So, God, if, if this is about sin, then just show it to me. I will confess it. I will repent of it. I will do anything to end this trial. Verse 21, why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? And so he asks for forgiveness, again, of any sin that's going on uh, uh, in his life and, uh, and, and that the Lord would uh, you know, take care of that as, as it relates uh, to his life. Just show me, and I'm going to, uh, to uh, uh, ask for your forgiveness. And then he says, for now I will lay down in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Lord, if you've got something to say to me about sin, you, and this is the cause of it, you need to tell me quickly because I don't have much uh, more time. And so Job then gives his defense here, and then he uh, falls silent at this particular uh, point. Now, one of the uh, biggest questions, and, and Job is dealing with what is one of the hardest things that we deal with in a trial, and, and that is the silence of God concerning the why. Why is this happening? Why is this going on? And one of the reasons for the silence of God during Job's trial, and it's true of many of our trials as well, is that if he explained the reason for the trial to us, then he would at the same time destroy the purposes of the trial. So God never allows us to go into a trial that is meaningless. I mean, very... I don't know that any of us will ever be in a trial where the stakes are as high as they were with Job. But we can know even in lesser trials that we are absolutely free to ask God why. There's nothing wrong with that. But if he does not answer our question of why, then we fall back on the knowledge that it is best for us not to know why, otherwise the purposes that he's working through this trial that I can't see would be destroyed. And so sometimes you find yourself in a very, very deep and difficult trial, and you can say, to, when, when we understand that, where we realize, all right, if God showed me the trial then everything that this is about in terms of his kingdom, everything this is about, about developing character in my life, all of that will be undone, and I will have to retake the class. 
Then you say, no, I don't want to retake the class. I don't know if I'm halfway through the semester. I don't know if I'm three-quarters of the way through the semester or seven-eighths of the way through the semester, but I want to ride this thing out all the way through because I don't want to take this grade over again. And so there's that realization and, and just the gentleness of God toward our heart. If he does not explain himself, it is because it will only do harm to us to know the reason why at that point in time. And, and so we're free to ask why, but if he doesn't answer, all we get is silence, then we need to fall back on uh, that realization. Now, chapter 8, then Bildad the Shuhite, uh, he, uh, he answered and he said, and his whole spiel is going to be repent of your sin and all of your uh, forgetfulness of God and your hypocrisy and your evil doing and then things will be better. So he then answers Job and he said, how long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? You ever just want to punch a Christian? I know we don't, but uh, it's a thought. Uh, Job, when you get talking, I mean, you just go on and on and on. I mean, do you know that about yourself? And here you are, you just start talking. Could you just shorten up your answers here a little bit and not talk so long? I mean, that's just an absolute affront of what he says uh, here, uh, here to Job. Or he could be talking to him about being like a strong wind and that he disagreed with what Job was saying and was just bluntly telling him that he was full of hot air. You don't say to a man who is wishing he would die because of the trial that he's in that he's talking too long when he talks and could he edit his comments for the sake of the hearers. It's just unbelievable, the insensitivity uh, of, of this man. And then he, as if things couldn't get worse, that was just his introduction. He said, does God subvert judgment? You think God has been wrong in what uh, he's done here? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he's cast them away for their own transgression. They died because of sin in their life. This is just how blunt he is in speaking to Job. Your, your sons, your children, they're all dead because of sin in their life. That's the only explanation for why something like that is allowed. Now, he probably thinks he's saying a good thing. Because Eliphaz, in his speaking to Job, told Job that Job's children were dead because of his sin which is the worst thing that you could ever tell a parent, especially if it's not true. So he at least is coming and saying, no, it's not because of your sin, but it's because of their sin, and all of it is wrong, wrong, wrong. It has no basis in, in reality uh, at all. So this guy is just cruel beyond uh, description. He just will not move away from this place that somehow these things only happen to people who have sinned against God, violated God's law in some way, and forced God then uh, to uh, judge them. Now, he then goes on to basically speak and that if Job would just simply repent, confess his sin, get right with God, everything would turn around and he'd be okay. If you would earnestly seek God, you're not doing it earnest enough, and make supplication to the Almighty, you don't, you don't have a good enough prayer life, if you were pure and upright, surely now 
he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling. And though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Job, if you just repent of your sin, this can still have a happy ending. For inquire, please, of the former age and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday, and these three men are older men. And, but they look and they say, hey, we're just like newborns. I mean, it, it, in terms of the wisdom that, that we have, we were born yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they, that is the ancients, not teach you and tell you and utter words from their hearts? Job, they're saying, in other words, Job, but we're telling you the truth here, that this is all about sin. This isn't just the three of us speaking. This is the understanding of wise men all through the ages. If we could bring every wise man forward from the grave to put them in our place, they would tell you the same thing. Tremendous comfort. And all of it was a lie. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water while it is yet green and not cut down? It withers before any other plant, and so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is a spider's web. So he's basically uh, arguing from nature related to cause and effect, and the idea is is that um, anywhere you have a marsh and you have reeds, you have water. The one goes with the other. And anywhere, any time in life you have this kind of a judgment, it must always mean that there is sin in a person's life. And so they just keep rehashing the same thing over and over again. And speaking of his trust uh, is a spider's web. And he leans on his house, the wicked does and the hypocrite, but it does not stand. Uh, He holds fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap down around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I have not seen you. And so all of these catastrophes have happened because of his hypocrisy and his forgetfulness of God. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will uh, grow. And behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to nothing. And so this is all God's judgment, but there is hope for a happy ending if you would just uh, repent of your sin here and, and then uh, as a result allow God to bring the judgment uh, to an end and then you can move on to a different kind of phase in life. Job then responds to Bildad's uh, speech, and he said, truly, I know it is so. Chapter 9 is a very interesting chapter. If you ever read it and say, man, I can't, I can't make any sense out of that. Well, um, I agree with you. Uh, it's a very difficult uh, chapter. 
but he's just so emotionally engaged. He's just trying to wrap his mind around all these things, and now he's he's dealing with the loss of ten children, the loss of everything that his life has been about. He's, He's being forced to question his relationship with God by his friends. He's dealing with these friends, and he's in debates that he never wanted to get in the middle of. And so emotionally, he's just all over the place. And so his thoughts can be kind of a little bit scattered. But he begins, begins by answering and saying, truly, I know it is so. And, and what he is saying to, to Bildad here is, I agree with the principle that in general, in life, the righteous are blessed and that the wicked are cursed. I believe that to be a general truth but it doesn't match the specifics of, uh, of my life here. And so he agreed with that, that principle in general, but now he's going to argue against its being applied uh, to him. He said, how can a man be righteous before God? And that word righteous, it doesn't mean how can a, a man uh, attain to salvation. It means to be declared innocent by God. So what Job is dealing with right now is he, know, he knows he is innocent of these charges that they're making against him, but he can't prove it. Only God can prove it, and God is being silent at the moment. So what he desires is to somehow find a way to subpoena God into a courtroom and force God to testify to these men that he is innocent of secret sin and hypocrisy. So that's what he's, that's what he's dealing with. I wish I could get God into a courtroom in some way force him to testify and for him to vouch for my character. If one, verse 3, wished to contend with uh, him, he would not answer him one out of a thousand. And that word contend means to kind of, uh, it is a kind of has a courtroom kind of application. If you look over in verse 19 uh, at the end of it, and if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? The whole setting is this court setting. If I get God in court and I could cross-examine him, ask him the questions that I want to ask him and force him to declare my innocence, then I would love that, have that opportunity. But then in verse 3, he'd like to do that, but he said if a person wished to contend with God, he couldn't answer him one time out of a thousand. In other words, you subpoena God into a courtroom, you force him uh, to testify, but who in the world could force a confession from God if he didn't want to make one at the moment? And so he was just saying, this is a a foolish thing that I'm talking about. It's a dream here. Even if I could do that, God would run circles around me in terms of, uh, of his great wisdom and knowledge. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And so Job is going to lay the case for the fact that man, including himself, is no match for God's wisdom and for his strength. So he's, he's trying to think of these things, and then he's realizing that it can't happen or it's a dumb thing to think and all, but this is just where he is. He's just like you and me when we're uh, in a mess. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against God and prospered? He removes the mountains, and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the 
the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, the chambers of the south, in other words, the universe and the heavens. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I don't see him. Job says, how am I going to, you know, corner him intellectually or build some case against him in a courtroom? I don't even know when he walks past me. The tremendous advantage. So if he moves past, I can't perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? And who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate uh, beneath him. And how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? In other words, if I did get him into court, how could I uh, answer his cross-examination? In those days, you could examine a person, but then you were open to be examined by that other person. He said, uh, if we're going to flip that around and God's going to examine me, how can I answer and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. That's all I could hope for. I couldn't hope for cornering him on the basis of justice or logic. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Not true. There's so much that's not true, but we won't stop and mention it every time. He will not allow me to catch my breath but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. He said, all right, I think about getting God up in, in, in the courtroom and asking them these questions, and then he would pose questions to me if he wasn't inclined to reveal my innocence, and the questions that he would ask of me would leave me so tongue-tied, I'd end up saying something that would condemn me anyway. So he's dreaming about doing this, but he realizes that it won't work, but again, this is, uh, this is, where, uh, this is where he is. I am blameless, he, he contends to his friends, yet I don't know myself. This is as far as I know myself. I don't have any secret sin. And he's, and he's, just, he's just crying out, I, I can't figure God out. I can't figure his ways out in my life right now. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked, if the scourge suddenly slays, uh, or slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. That is not true, but this is what he feels like. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who else could it be? And so he's, Job is basically saying, uh, to them and, and to us, and he's not the last one to think it. Uh, he said, you would think that as God runs this universe and runs this world that we live in, that he would do it in a way in which the righteous are always and obviously and immediately rewarded for righteousness. 
so the whole world could see that that's true about God and that the wicked would be always immediately and obviously judged for their wickedness so that the world would realize that these are laws of God, that this is what happens. So he says, if I was running the universe, that's how I would do it. I would make that unmistakable. But he contends with his friends, that's not how God uh, handles things, that all judgment does not happen in this life, that all, all blessing and all reward that is going to come to the righteous does not come to the righteous in this life necessarily. There is a life beyond this life. There is a world beyond this world where things are going to be finalized, where the reward of the righteous is going to be fully given to the righteous, but it may not happen in this life. And again, as we looked at last week or the week before, this contention that that the righteous are always blessed in this life, it, it violates not only Christian history, it violates the practical experience of Christians all over the world tonight who are being horribly persecuted for the simple reason that they are righteous and they have a walk with God that is conforming them into the image of Christ and that change that's happening into their, in their life is a threat to the demonic realm but also a threat to human power in those places so persecution is brought against them. And again, Jesus is the great example in human history that righteousness is not always rewarded in the fallenness of this world. The Bible says that one day we're going to be in heaven. It's recorded in the book of Revelation. It won't just happen in the new heaven and in the new earth, but following the rapture of the church and, and the great tribulation is occurring on the earth, we will be in heaven. And one of the praise songs, and it might be a, a praise song that we sing to the Lord for all of eternity, I don't know. But one of the things that we will sing to God when we see how he deals with every single person on the other side of this life, when judgment and reward is final, we will sing to God, righteous and true are your judgments. When we see him and he's allowed the time to put his final stamp on each life, we're going to look and say, that is so right on, that is so perfect, that is so just, and we will give him praise for that. But that does not happen necessarily in this life. And if I carry that expectation to my life as, as a child of God or into life in general in this world, then I'm going to be disappointed because that's not the way, that's not a promise that God has made to us. Life is unfair. Life is difficult in this world. And even as Job said, the, is the old song, even the good die young. That happens all of the time. Good people. And then the wicked, as Job is bringing out here in verse 24, the wicked become judges. They become leaders in a nation. They're terrible people sometimes. And they're given 
uh, allowed positions of great influence to corrupt not only, to spread the corruption that's in their own heart upon an entire nation. So he's basically saying, I agree in general that this is the truth about the righteous and the wicked, but it's not down to the specific. You can't make it the law or the rule or the theological tenet in this life that you're making it. And Job is having to contend, not from history, he is basically saying, I can, he's saying, I can disprove this from my own life. But open up your eyes and look at life around you. You see many wicked people, he's telling them, prospering in this life. And many who are righteous who are suffering. And all of them rise up as a witness against this idea that the righteous always prosper in this life and the wicked are always judged. He said, now my days are swifter than a runner (laughs) that assumes a fast runner. Um, They flee, uh, my days they flee, uh, they flee away, they see no good. My days they pass like swift ships and they pass like an eagle swooping down on its prey. So he said, my life is going fast, I can't last much longer. And if I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you, God, will not hold me innocent. If I'm condemned, then why do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water, I cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. And so he's basically saying, if I went into this courtroom that I'm dreaming that I could, you know, uh, have this meeting with God and I uh, went in with all the ways that everybody that wants to make a good impression on the judge does. You walk in with a smile. He talks about here, uh, you're all washed and clean and you're wearing clean clothes, all these things that people do to uh, give a good impression. He's saying it wouldn't do any good because God is against me and he's going to judge me. And again, all of this is false. It's not true about God. But again, he has taken these things that people have said about God and planted these thoughts in his mind and they've really taken root. And so now he is accusing God and he is rejecting God or or he's not rejecting God, he is accusing God and coming against God on the basis of what other people have said about God and not on the basis of what God is really like. Think about how many people reject God today in the world on the word of someone who has said something about God that doesn't know anything about God. And, and so this is what's happening uh, in, in, his, uh, in his life. And it's a, it's a terrible, terrible thing what they have said here. They put him on a path that he should not be on, and godly counselors would have spared them of that, but him of that, but uh, they are not uh, godly or loving counselors. And then he declares concerning God, for he is not a man that I may answer him. I don't have access to God. God has access to me, but I, don't, I, don't have, I can't get from here to heaven. He's infinite. I'm finite. I can reach about eight feet, and that's about what I can do. And that we should go to court uh, together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both and let him take his rod away from me and do not let... Uh, 
do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. And so what, they, what Job is asking for is a mediator uh, to solve this problem that he has, again, in a courtroom kind of a setting. Uh, the old King James, I think it refers to uh, as a, a daysman. He realizes that uh, he, that that he wants to reason with God, but God is infinite. God is in heaven. There's this great gulf between God and man, and somehow there has to be a mediator between God and man in order for man to have relationship or contact uh, with God. And in that day, uh, the daysman or a mediator is the words used in the New King James. It, it spoke of a person who had the authority to set the day for when competing parties would come together to settle their dispute. And so a mediator was someone who could safely bring two parties together to discuss a problem. That's what he wanted as a daysman, to provide a safe environment where I can talk with God about how I'm feeling, how I'm seeing things, and perhaps get an explanation, uh, ex, uh, explanation from him, a mediator to bridge that gap. And Job was, of course, asking for what we have in the Lord Jesus, a mediator who's put us in relationship with God. You think about the great advantages that we have uh, as Christians when we go into trial that Job didn't have. Again, it is very, very likely that Job lived at the time of Abraham. He, pre he predates the law of Moses. He predates the entire Old Testament, to say nothing of the New Testament. He doesn't have one ten-thousandth of the revelation of God that a simple Christian has who's read through their Bible twice. So this is what he's working with. He knows that God exists. He knows God in the sense of creator. He knows God in terms of that the creator is always greater than the creation, and so he worships him. He knows God on some level and on a beautiful level. But when you and I go into a trial, we don't have to guess whether God loves us, what he's thinking about us, whether he's for us or against us, or whether he's angry with us. We don't have to wish that we could get him in a courtroom and have a conversation in an instant. I could stop right now at this point in this sermon and instantly depart from this room and go into prayer and my prayer go right to the throne room of God in an instant. The communication that we have with God because of our mediator. And so, the, he's, he's, if we're seeing through a glass darkly, and then one day face to face, he's seeing through uh, a lot of dirt on the mirror, you know, that, he, that he's working with here. So I just say all of this to just think about the privilege that is ours, even the greatness of the trials that God allows us to go in and then for a time does not explain himself because all, all we need to know about the trial he's already revealed, and that is he'll work it together for our good. That's all we need to really know about it. And then just to, to wait on him, but, but he would destroy and mar the trial and what it's producing if he revealed it to us. 
And so we have these, this tremendous revelation because of Jesus. We know what the Father is like because He is like Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. It's the, we're the same. And it, not in terms of being the same person, but it's the same personality and characteristic. It says in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus and Job longing, he's he just absolutely longing for what we enjoy every single day as a Christian. He's longing for a mediator to put him in contact with God the Father. And concerning Jesus as the mediator, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And why is he the daysman? Why is he the mediator? Why can we have contact with a true and living and holy God? Because the next verse says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He's the one, he's the daysman. He's the only one in human history ever will be in human history as the God-man, all God, all man, all at the same time. Only his sacrifice allows him to bring God into relationship with man and man into relationship with God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the same vein. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. That, it's only because of his sacrifice that this is our portion, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so Jesus himself, just the fact that we are Christians and have this revelation of God that is found in Jesus, Jesus alone protects us from ever being in Job's exact place when we find ourselves in the middle of uh, great, great difficulty. In verse 35 when he says, then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. He says, if it, if it were possible, Job would confront God fearlessly, he says, but then he said in despair, I don't have that access. So he begins the chapter, and he wants to subpoena God, and he wants to cross-examine him, and then he gives up hope, because how could I ever say, and God's so much smarter, and he's so much stronger, and then I want to do this, and then, he's, then he gives up, and he's just emotionally all over the map on things. And, and so this is where he is in his communication. He said, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me, and notice that next word, show me why you contend with me. And so Job here in chapter 10, he, he's basically laying out, if I got God in a courtroom, this is the case I would lay against him. First question I would ask him is, why in the world are you doing this to me. And again, it's okay to ask God why, but we have to also recognize that when he, he doesn't answer, there's good reason for that. One day we'll know. Does, he, does it seem good to you as he speaks to God that you should oppress, and that you should despise the work of your hands and, and smile on the counsel of the wicked? And in other words, Job is saying, why did you put all that work that you put into me? allowing me to marry, giving me all those children, 
allowing me to prosper, allowing me to have a great name and a great reputation for your, your glory. Why did, you, why did you build me up so high to then just tear me down the way that you've done that? Couldn't you let, just left me a little anonymous somebody in the corner and then done this? So, you know, why in the world did you put all that work into me just to destroy me? And it, while the wicked seem to be getting away with murder, do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. And, and basically he's saying, God, you know that I am innocent. And you don't have to investigate the facts the way that human beings would be. And then they've got to go over here and check this and cross-check and then talk with these witnesses. And all that goes into establishing a person's innocence human to human. He says, you know everything. You know I'm innocent of all of these uh, charges. You don't have to investigate uh, to know that. And your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray that you've made me like clay, and will, you turn me, uh, and will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? And he's talking about being formed in his mother's womb as he's just being fashioned in the embryo, and he's, and he's likening it to that. And then you clothed me with skin and with flesh, and you knit me together with bones and sinews. Have you granted me life and favor, and your care has… You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. And these things you have hidden in your heart. And I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. Even if I'm righteous, I can't lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and you show yourself awesome against me. In other words, did you so carefully form me in the womb and give me life and bring me into this world in order to let a fierce lion come in and, and destroy me, speaking of, of the trial. He said, you renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes or war are ever with me. Why, here's the question again, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Why would you allow a person to be born to face all of this? And God remained silent because uh, it would mar the, 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 all that's going on uh, if he uh, answered the question of Job. Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me, that I'd never been born, and I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave, that I, he wishes that he had been stillborn. And are, and are my days few? Cease. Let me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as, death, a land as, dark as darkness as this itself as the shadow of death without any order where even the light is like darkness. And so he, 
He asked the Lord, again in this setting of a courtroom, would you please sentence me to death and kill me and put me out of my misery? It's a very, a very powerful, you know, and to, to hear how difficult the trial is uh, that, that he is uh, in, in the middle of. And then chapter 11, uh, Zophar, he uh, makes his first communication uh, with Job, and, uh, and Zophar, the Namathite, he answered Job when Job f- finished speaking, and he said uh, to him, he said, should not the multitude of words be answered, and should not a man full of talk, <laughs> imagine saying this, full of talk be vindicated, should your empty talk make men hold their peace, and when you mock, should no one rebuke you. So he accuses him of multitude of words, full of talk, empty talk, that he's just full of self-serving hot air, just a windbag. Again, here's a guy pouring out his heart and what he thought was a safe environment to begin with, and now he's getting defensive and he's and, and he's, he's engaging in, in an argument uh, uh, with them here. And, and so that's the reason that he's having this communication. If they weren't accusing him of something that was false, the conversation would take a completely different way. Job isn't innocent in all of this, and God is going to rebuke him at the end. But God is going to be much harder on his three so-called counselors for leading him into this line of thought. And he continues his rebuke by saying, For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak. Man, you want to hear God talk? I'll tell you what you'd hear if you got him in a courtroom and, and you got him to open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, here's what God would say, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Somebody, please, hide all of the sharp objects that are within reach. Job? What you're in the middle of right now isn't the half of what you deserve because of your sin. That's what he says to this guy. He's lost ten children. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost his health. He's lost everything that means anything to him except his relationship with God. And this guy is going to tell him that God is actually letting you off easy if we knew what God knows in terms of the sin that is in your life. It is terrible. So here's a guy, he, is, he feels like he has to defend God's reputation because of what Job is saying, and he knows he can't act violently toward Job, and so he just expresses a terrible violence uh, through his words. This is a very, very cutting thing to say about Job. That's the truth about you, Job, if you really want to know it and if you were really exposed. Can you search out the deep things uh, of God? And you find out the limits of the Almighty. They are higher than heaven. What can you do? 
Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And so what makes you think that you can challenge God in this way in the light of his wisdom and his power? If he passes by in prisons or gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. And, when, and will, he not, will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born, uh, when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. So he accuses Job of being empty-headed. He accuses him of, of, of not having a brain and that the chances of Job becoming wise in the light of the things that he's speaking were uh, greater than the possibility of a donkey, a wild donkey giving birth to a man. He says, we'll see a wild donkey give birth to a man before we see you speaking wisdom. And a wild donkey in those days was known as like the stupidest of animals. It's quite an affront, quite an insult that he's saying. He said, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward God, and so he's going to give the solution to Job again, just confess your sin and your wickedness, repent, the trial will end, and then your life is going to turn around. If you would prepare your heart, stretch out your hands toward him in prayer. If iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away. This will soon become a distant memory if you get right with God and your life would be brighter than new day. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked shall fail. In other words, if you don't repent and confess, then you're going to die. The eyes, failing eyes, are speaking of death, and they shall not escape, and their hope, loss of life. And so he gives this counsel to him of the need to repent of sin, get right with God, and then everything will turn out okay. There are places in which that is outstanding counsel, but only when we know that a person is engaged in deliberate wickedness and disobedience to God. So the counsel is fabulous in some contexts, but it has nothing to do with Job's situation. And so it just hurts Job, and it terribly misrepresents the Lord, though they claim to be speaking for the Lord. Well, Job is going to respond to this, and it's going to take, they thought he was long-winded before, it's going to take three chapters to uh, respond to what it is that they're saying, and we'll continue the book uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, and uh, if Israel doesn't attack Iran, and then Russia come down from the north, and then Libya, and and the whole thing, and we get raptured out of here and and clear out. So I was was hoping that the rapture would occur tonight at about 6.30, and then... um, and those who were raptured from in front of their television sets, uh, that we would let them know that we got raptured from church. 
and uh, the way that any good Christian uh, would want to be anytime the doors of the church are open. But enough of my carnality. I don't want to influence you with that. But really, as we look at this, and we've seen it many times now, we're going to see it many times uh, further, and we will keep working to, to pick up the pace because of the repetition of what's being said, but it really does make us slow down in judging people and judging circumstances that we don't know anything about. And the power of our words when a person is in this kind of a trial, when they're healthy, they can just roll it off. But we can say something when we claim to represent God that can start them down a path that is the worst path that they could be on. And so it's so healthy. It just puts the fear of God. And Job is going to come to that a little bit later to them. Where is the fear of God in you people? And, and you, you speak so freely for him, and he knows they're wrong. And they keep pounding him. And it really does put a healthy fear of God in us to speak into situations or to speculate into situations, even in the privacy of our own heart, about other people and circumstances that we do not know what God is doing there. And that, of course, is a great lesson for all of us. And at least I need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. And I suspect that you're like me as well. If you sit here this morning or this evening we, and you are not yet a Christian, you have never ever put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that. You don't get to heaven by being a good person. You don't get into heaven by attending a church or belonging to a church. You get into heaven when there is a moment in time in your life where you make the decision to trust in the daysman, to trust in the Savior that God has provided, and there's only one who can put us in relationship with God. There's only one sacrifice that produces the forgiveness of sin in our life to make that possible, and that is Jesus himself. And there are going to be men, pastors up in front, men and women up in front, who would love to pray with you to receive the forgiveness of sins tonight as you put your faith in Jesus and now begin a relationship with God this evening. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving. Take advantage of the opportunity. As always, any need that you have in your life that you would like to have someone just, you can be praying for months and months and months related to it in your own life, and you say, you know, I just need someone to lay a hand on my shoulder and lift this need up for me to God from my own life. I want someone else to help carry what it is that I'm carrying. And these men and women would be happy to do that for you this evening. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. And this is a pretty, um, it's a difficult scene to be in the middle of, but it's it's necessary, and that's why it's in your word, and we know that. But it's hard to even eavesdrop on conversations that are inflicting this much pain on a person already in great pain. But we pray that you would use it in the hands of your Holy Spirit to fashion us and to equip us, Lord, with caution, the fear of God, 
to lean toward grace, Lord, to just cut away a judgmental spirit, a know-it-all spirit in any of our hearts, tendency to judge situations that we don't know anything about. And as we just see the ugliness in these chapters, Lord, and the ugliness of these words, we pray that you use it to make us a completely different kind of influence in situations like this in the remaining days of our pilgrimage. We thank you tonight for our days, men. We thank you for the revelation, the light that we have because of Jesus in the midst of the trials that we find ourselves in. And we give you praise for him tonight in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Samuel, will you close us?